John chapter 3. And, and the passage that we are looking at uh, in John chapter 3, we got, uh, got through verse 16 and 17 and 18. Really, just really, really probably the greatest passages in the entire Bible. The most really important and full passage in the in the Bible, and 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 this idea of believing, and of course this now also being the season of Advent, and and we we sang Joy of the World this morning, and I've told you guys this before, but if you think about the lyrics of that song, it's not singing about the first coming; it's singing about the second coming, and yet it's a Christmas song, which we probably ought to sing all year round. Uh, of course, once I've said that, now some people are, how come we have a same joy of the world? Right? Anyway, but, but it is joy to the world. Is, uh, the Savior has come. And it, it's, it, it's the, as the scripture does, it's this interlayering of the first and the second comings of Jesus. We see that in, in prophecy. We, I want to look at Isaiah chapter 7 this morning. I don't have near amount the time that I would like to take with this passage, um, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take some excerpts from Isaiah chapter 7 this week. Next week, we'll look at Isaiah chapter 8, and then the following Sunday, which is the Sunday before Christmas, we'll look at Isaiah chapter 9. Uh, that's why I wanted to read Isaiah chapter 9 um, this morning, and we will read it. Um, I want to take communion for the rest of Advent, and uh, we'll be reading that passage as well. Just to really, to really drive home this idea of what the book of Isaiah, or at least this portion of the book of Isaiah. The book of Isaiah is just a fascinating book. I taught on it years ago. Um, I remember sharing with another pastor that we were in the book of Isaiah. and goes, oh man, you're doing the heavy lifting. Because it, it's a very, very involved book. Uh, although we have looked at all these passages before and it might... Um, stir some of your remembrance of it, but nonetheless, particularly in the idea of Advent, which begins in darkness, and it begins with this posture of waiting and this posture of expectation, recognizing that the first coming of Jesus is an expression of, not that it'll happen in the same way, it'll happen very differently, but it is... The celebration of the first coming of Jesus is a recognition of the fact that Jesus will, in fact, come again. For as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now, there are different views on that. I'm not going to even bother going into different views. You know, some of you already know my views are probably different than some of yours on this. But nonetheless... The important thing is that Jesus will come back. Jesus will come back, he will rule, and he will reign. And all that sitting into the darkness that we experience. And, and you know, to me, I think the church has really, really never had it good. Uh, we've always had those things that we encounter, that those, those persecutions, those, those hardships, those difficult times. And then to throw on top of that, 
God is desiring to sanctify us, and often the work of our sanctification is going through the trials that we go through. And so what you have here in Isaiah chapter 7, 8, 9, it's known as the book of Emmanuel by a lot of Bible commentators. Some of them even will include chapters 7, 8, 9, 10, and 11 as the book of Emmanuel. The book of Isaiah is a fascinating book, as I said earlier, and it really is in three, if not more, different sections. Now, there are literary critics or what's known as higher criticism that says because the book is very different, in those three sections that must have been written by three different writers and then all compiled under the name of Isaiah. Now, the interesting thing about that is somehow they missed or they did not consider Jesus in his earthly ministry, he quotes from all three different sections of the the book of Isaiah and guess whom he attributes it towards? He attributes it toward the writing of the prophet, wait for it, Isaiah. And so I I really, I I think it's very easy for me to believe that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that Isaiah could shift in his writing. Um, And it's very purposeful. It's a very full book. It was written over, I believe, many years, by the way. I don't think he just sat down and started writing it. Uh, It's historical, it's prophetic, uh, it's incredibly messianic. Uh, Some of the, I think the most important Old Testament passages referring to the Messiah are found in the book of Isaiah. We have the the servant songs, which I taught on years ago. Wonderful. They're they're hard, but they're wonderful. And the servant songs are all illustrations of whom? The suffering servant who is the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And so what you have going on here in this first part of the book of Isaiah, that really in my mind is actually a second part after the first part of the first six verse, or first six chapters, but nonetheless, I don't want to slice and dice this too much, is you have what's going on is that somewhere in the neighborhood of between 735 and perhaps 722 B.C., the Assyrian Empire is starting to expand its influence. And the Assyrians are starting to conquer people. They're starting to get uh, more territory. Um, And even the prophet will indicate that God is raising them up for this purpose. And because the Assyrian Empire is starting to gain some momentum and they're taking over different countries, the northern kingdom, now what do I mean by the northern kingdom? The the nation of Israel, also known as Ephraim, also known as Samaria, the northern kingdom, the ten northern tribes. Remember, there was a split in the nation of Israel, and ten of the tribes went and formed their own government with their own king and two tribes. Do you remember who they were? Judah and Benjamin remained under the house of David. Why is that important? 
It's important because God made a promise in 2 Samuel chapter 7 that there would not cease to be one who would sit on the throne of David. And it was through the throne of David, the lineage of David, that the Messiah would come. We see that in the genealogies both in Matthew and in the book of Luke. So the Messiah had to come through the line of David. So there was a split that this is uh, really well documented in the scriptures. There was a split between the two kingdoms after Solomon's son, uh, Rehoboam, took the kingdom. Ten broke away, and God was the one who essentially caused that to happen, and he prophesied that that would happen. And God caused the ten to go away and form their own kingdom. Now, they were still Israel, and they took on the name Israel. The southern kingdom was known as, you guys know this, Judah. Isaiah, if you go, boy, I feel like I'm going to be here forever just to kind of give you this, but I think it's important to grab this. Isaiah, if you go to the first chapter, It says, the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, concerning Judah and Jerusalem. So he is a prophet to whom? The southern kingdom, Judah. Which he saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Uh, First and second kings really gives you a good chronology of, of that whole time frame and how long that actually took. So... What is going on here is that the Assyrians are expanding their empire. And the northern kingdom, who went full-blown into apostasy, if you know much about the history of the northern kingdom, they did not want their subjects going to Jerusalem, which was located where? Judah, the southern kingdom. They did not want their subjects worshiping in the southern kingdom. So what did they do? They set up two, of all things, golden calves. Now, didn't, shouldn't something have rang a bell for these folks? Wasn't there a story about Israel and the golden calf at Mount Sinai? Talk about Those who forget history are condemned to repeat it. Here it is. They set up two golden calves, one in Dan. Dan is the very northern part of the northern kingdom. And the other was, I believe, in Beersheba. This is all off the top of my head, but anyway. So I could be wrong about that. But, but, and they, and they, this is, they would say, come, this is Yahweh. Okay, now, didn't one of the commandments say something about not a graven image? They went further and further and further into apostasy. Finally, God, he, is pro- he rages up prophets and he warns them. And at the same time, he's not only warning Israel. Elijah is one of those. I, Elijah was a prophet to the northern kingdom. God raised him up to, to warn them. But he also raised up prophets in the southern kingdom because the southern kingdom started slipping into apostasy as well. The northern kingdom is worried because the Assyrian Empire is expanding. So they go into this idea of forming political alliances. Does that sound familiar? It should. 
They form political alliances, treaty organizations. Hmm, I wonder who's done that. They form alliances with another ungodly nation known as Aram or also known as Syria, which is north of the, and east of the northern kingdom. And so they form an alliance. These two kings form this alliance. It's King Rezin from Syria and King Pekah, the son of Ramaliah, the king of Israel. It's in verse 1 of chapter 7. And they try to get the southern kingdom to get involved in this treaty, this alliance. And at least King Ahaz, who was not a good king, he was not a godly man. King Ahaz, the southern kingdom's king. So far, you're all with me, right? Okay. The king of Judah who was not a godly man, but refused to join in this alliance. And so what happens, the Syrians and the Israelites, also known as the Ephraimites or the Sumerians, they attack the southern kingdom. And they're going to take over the southern kingdom, and they're going to kick out the Davidic king and install a new king, and then they would have a unified Israel north and south, Boy, does history repeat itself or not? Isn't this fascinating? I think of Korea, I think of Vietnam. Anyway, they would have a unified Israel to stand up against the Assyrians. But God had raised up the Assyrians because he was done with the apostasy of the northern kingdom. And it tells us in the text here that it won't be too much longer that the northern kingdom will go into uh, dispersion they don't even go into exile they are dispersed what do i mean by that in exile you take a big chunk of the people and you take them and you put them somewhere else that's what eventually happened to the southern kingdom at about 586 bc with the northern kingdom when the assyrians finally took over 722 bc they took a portion of the northern kingdom and they put them over here and they put those people who were over there and they brought them into the northern kingdom. And then they took some of these other people and they moved them over there and they took some of those people over there and they brought them back into the northern kingdom and the land of Israel. So they dispersed them. It's harder to keep a national unity when you disperse people rather than taking a chunk of people together and bringing them into exile. Does that make sense? At least that's my opinion. Your mileage can vary or not on that one. So they are fearful because the Assyrians are flexing their muscles. That's a dark time. You might be an ungodly king. Let's back this down a bit. You might be Joe, citizen of Judah, right? Or Josephine, going to cleave the women. You might be a citizen of Judah with an ungodly king. Sounds familiar, right? 
and yet hoping and trusting that the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord and he turns it which way he wills. Knowing that God has made a promise to David that the line of David will continue until the Messiah comes. All right, eventually they go into exile, all right? There's a whole lot of other things that I really want to throw in here right now that I'm tempted, but it would take me about five to ten minutes, and I might muddy the waters, so I'm not going there. Some of you I can tell you're already thinking about them just on the looks on your faces. The line of David would continue for the Messiah. And so the king of Judah, named Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, the king of Judah, right? He's at a crossroads. And he's either going to believe that God is going to preserve him, even though it's a very dark time, or he's going to take matters into his own hands in one way, shape, or form and try to prevent the darkness from continuing to come. See, part of the idea of Advent and part of the idea of the waiting in Advent is that you don't take matters into your own hands and try to make things happen. You trust in the promises of God. You trust in the fact that God will do exactly what he says he will do. Now that's not easy. If you believe, excuse me, I'll back up. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and you believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. It didn't say you might be saved. It didn't say you could be saved. It says you'll be saved. Well, that's all well, fine and good, but I don't feel saved every day. Do you feel saved every day? No, don't, don't, don't acknowledge. Okay, some of you already did. I don't feel saved every day. but I can either trust in what I feel or even looking at my actions. Now, of course, the, the Scripture does says, by your fruit you will know them. Yes, I understand that. But the, what I'm emphasizing here is this idea of the God will, he is faithful to complete that which he has begun in you, Philippians chapter 1. Now, some of you at this stage of the game in your life, perhaps he needs to put in a little bit more overtime. I don't know, Right? But he is faithful to complete that which he, that was a joke. But anyway, he is faithful to complete that which he began. He's faithful. Paul writes to Timothy, he's faithful when we are what? Faithless because he cannot deny himself. And it tells us in verse 2, when it was reported to the house of David, Isaiah 7, saying the Arameans, or the Syrians, have taken a stand against Ephraim. Who is Ephraim? Northern kingdom, right? Stand with did I say against? A stand by, the, 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 uh, by Ephraim. In other words, they have, they have come together. And it says, his heart, 
and the hearts of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake from the wind. Have you ever been in the forest where it's really windy? I think we all have. I'm not talking about last Sunday when it wasn't that windy out there. But I've been out there to try to cut trees and, uh, or cut, cut down fallovers, and it's so windy up there, I'm afraid of, there's going to be a blowover and land on me, right? We, we even canceled uh, because of the wind sometimes. And see those trees move back and forth. When we lived in South Lake Tahoe, we had this huge ponderosa pine. It was probably about 2,385 feet high, or so it seemed. And I would want, I'd go underneath it when it was really windy. And it used to get really windy in Tahoe. They would actually clock the winds at the, at the ridges at about 100 miles an hour. And, and um, I would watch this thing sway back and forth, and it, would, it was about four feet both directions. And it was really fun to watch. And it would, but the, the, the branches were shaking, and, you know, and, and that's what's going on here in Judah. These people are back and forth, and they're fearful, and they're shaking. And there wasn't no Facebook to rant about it. Had to throw that in. They couldn't complain about it. And so, what did they do? And so the Lord says to Isaiah, go out now and meet Ahaz, you and your son, Shur Jashem, at the end of the conduit, of the upper pool by the road of the fuller's field and say to him, take care and be calm and have no fear and do not be faint-hearted because of these two stumps smoldering. He's talking about the two kings, the king of the northern kingdom and the king of Syria. These two, he says, they're basically just a bunch of stumps that are just still smoldering and they're being burned and they're being consumed and for before long, they're not even going to be in the picture. Don't be faint-hearted. Don't be fearful. Take care and be calm. Even though Aram, or Syria, verse 5, with Ephraim and the sons of Ramaliah have planned evil against you, saying, let us go up against Judah and terrorize it and take it for ourselves by assault and set up the son of Tibil, as king in the midst of it. And this is what the Lord God says. It shall not stand, nor shall it come to pass. For the head of Aram is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin. Now within another 65 years, Ephraim will be broken to pieces as a prophecy of the dispersion of the northern kingdom, so that it will no longer be a people, and the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Ramaliah. If you will not believe, you certainly shall not last. If you will not believe, you certainly shall not last. They're scared to death because they're going to get overran by the Syrians and the northern kingdom and the Assyrians are expanding their empire. And the king of the southern kingdom, Ahaz, a lot of A's in the story today, I was in there. 
He wants to make an alliance with the Assyrians. It tells us that in 2 Kings 16. It tells us that in 2 Chronicles chapter 28. There's a lot of backstory in this that you could read about. And he wants to make an alliance with the ungodly Assyrians. And he does, eventually. They eventually turn on him. He tries to make an alliance with the Egyptians. And they eventually come in and just wipe out the northern kingdom, almost wipe out the southern kingdom. That's given to us later in the book of Isaiah with a different king. But the point that I want to really drag out here where it says, if you do not believe, you certainly shall not last. In other words, God's going to do what God's going to do, but if you don't believe, you're not going to last. That is so easy to read this morning, isn't it? Sometimes. I think it's very hard To live that out in our life at times. Especially when everybody's watching. Everybody's taking notes. Everybody wants to see you fall on your face. Everybody wants you to demonstrate to them and to everyone else what a great Christian you're not. Right? I think it's really hard. I think he was really in a hard place. And so it goes on. It says, Then the Lord spoke again to Ahaz. Now, it's presumed, my thought on this as well, it's presumed that God spoke to Ahaz through the prophet Isaiah. It doesn't say that, but I believe that that's what this is really describing. The Lord spoke again to Ahaz, saying, Ask for a sign for yourself and from the Lord your God. Make it as deep as Sheol or as high as the heaven. Ask for a sign. You know, as I I read this, I thought, I've had a few signs or what I thought were signs. But at the same time, when when God puts it out there for you so plainly and says, don't worry. There are a bunch of smoldering stumps that are going to just be burned away. Kind of like when you clear a field where you would cut down the trees and when the stumps were left, you'd light those on fire so that they would break down and no longer even be in the field. To be calm, to take care, to not, be, not have any fear, and to not be faint-hearted. This is what's going to happen. Ask me for a sign to confirm it. I wish he would do that for me. Don't you? And he just writes it on the wall, if you want to use that expression. He brings the, raises up the prophet to speak these things into the life of the southern kingdom and then further says, ask me for a sign. 
Wow. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, nor will I put the Lord to test. Such a devout religious man. Deuteronomy 6 says, Thou shalt not test the Lord your God. So it's there for him, right? But what really bothers me about this is he plays the religious card. Who asked him to ask God for a sign? God did. Can God take someone out of Torah? or beyond Torah teaching? Is it a sin to ask God for a sign when God has clearly said to you, ask me for a sign? No, it's not. See, the Torah is there like a boundary to keep us in, in the right place uh, where we can walk with God. But, but, but God's bigger than his, his word. He is. He's bigger than his word. I'm big on the word. I teach the word. But he's bigger than his word. And he's calling that king to take a step of faith that transcends what he has been taught in the Torah. Because it is very clear, and Jesus referred to this, that the bulk of the book was written, Hebrews talks about this as well, the bulk of the book is written about him. We read Torah and we should find Jesus. We read the Old Testament prophets and we should find Jesus. And you have Jesus who comes and takes a Jewish religious system that was broken and he sits up on this mountain in Matthew chapter 5, 6 and 7 and he gives us this incredible sermon on the mount that explains the real purpose and the real goal was known in the Greek as the telos the real goal of what Torah was really all about to begin with he calls him outside of Torah. And so Ahaz wants to stay with the boundaries. And he gets real religious on God. You ever gotten religious on God? I have people get religious on me all the time, so it's that's fine. But he got really religious on God. I don't think that's really to me I don't think that's a good idea. Especially when God has said, ask me. This wasn't Ahaz's idea. It was God's idea. That's very important to understand. All right? I will not. I will not ask, nor will I put the Lord to test. And then he said, listen now, house of David. Who is he speaking to here? He's speaking to Ahaz, but he's speaking to the house of David. What does that mean? He goes all the way back and he's tapping into that promise that was made to David and to the house of David. Samuel 7, again, 
and all of those who will extend beyond it. Ahaz then becomes basically a figurehead, if you will, of the house of David in this prophecy. Do you guys see what I'm getting at? Listen now, house of David, is it to a trivial thing that you will try the patience of man, that you will try the patience of God as well? God's a little upset here. Because I don't think there's anything, well, there are worse things, all right? But I wonder about those things that when we use religion to be disobedient. Jesus talked about it. Come and follow me. I can't. I have to bury my mother and father. Sell everything and give it to the poor. You know, all of those things. We, we see these in the Gospels. Using religion to be disobedient. Li- using religion to live in d- unbelief. And so he says, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and she will name him Emmanuel. I'm just going to stop there due to time. There's a whole lot that I could really bring out of this. This word virgin, it's translated virgin in the King James and also the New American Standard, which is what I'm reading from this morning. It is the Hebrew word Alma. Hebrew word is Alma. And it refers to a woman of marriageable age. It's translated virgin, but the definition is strictly a woman of, young woman of marriageable age. A woman who is not married who is of marriageable age. Does that make sense? All right. Now, in Hebrew culture, if a woman was not married, she should be a virgin. Right? That was the understanding. I remember a day in our culture that used to be the case, but that was years ago, right? So she's a woman of marriageable age. We'll see part of this prophecy, and I'm not going to take the time to unpack this probably this week or next. Maybe on Wednesday night, I don't know. We'll see part of this prophecy fulfilled in the next chapter, I believe. Chapter 8. Part of it. Not all of it. Because what I believe is going on here is that this is a prophecy that has more than one fulfillment. See, you guys know this about me. I'm a big believer in double fulfillments and prophecy. Double fulfillments are the near, the near and the far fulfillment. Because we see this verse quoted in Matthew chapter 1, verse 23, referring to Mary giving birth to Jesus. And incidentally, and you all already know this, the name Emmanuel means what? God with us. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and she will name him God with us. It's a very strong statement of the deity of Christ as well. 
Matthew 1, again, talks about this. And when it refers to this verse, now Matthew is written originally in what language? Greek. There's debate about that, but I'll go with Greek, okay? There's also a citation from the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew. When it comes to this word virgin in the Greek, it obviously won't use the word Alma because that's Hebrew. It uses the word Parthenos. Parthenos. What does Parthenos mean in the Greek? Virgin. Can't mean anything else. Doesn't mean a woman of marriageable age. It means virgin, period. So those who translated the Septuagint and also by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, when the Holy Spirit inspired Matthew to write his book identifying Mary as the virgin who would give birth to God with us. And this was a sign that was given not just to King Ahaz, who some commentators, I I love this one guy, he refers to him as King No-Belief or King Unbelief, right? Because he did not believe. But this sign was given to the full house of David being expressed in final fulfillment with the birth of Jesus Christ. Those who have walked in darkness have seen a great light. We're out of time, but we're just getting started. That's what I love about this. Within the realm of human doubt, which I believe is different than unbelief, but I'm not going there this morning with y'all, unbelief, or even belief, within the realm of all of that, within the realm of our exchange and our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, within all of that, in God will not be thwarted from that which he says he will do. That which he says he will do, he's going to do. So if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and you believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Because God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. He gives the prophecy of the sign, which is fulfilled short term, the next chapter, within a few years, within a year or two, actually.
pointing to that final fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ who comes the first time fulfills his mission on the cross. Yeah, I mean, Ken told me this last Sunday. He loves about, he has so many things, little things he loves about John. One of them is that John records on the cross, it is finished. Which also, the birth, the death, the finishing, the resurrection, the ascension, all point to what? He's coming back. Those who sit in darkness have seen a great light. I love, I should shut up, but I love what the book of Hebrews says, that they saw these things from afar in faith, having not received them, but they, uh, having not seen them fulfilled, but they received them in faith. That's what Advent is intended to teach us, to walk by faith not by sight. Amen? Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, you have shared your purposes, your plans, and coupled it with your steadfastness and your faithfulness in so many ways that we have recorded for us in your holy word. And so, Lord, we pray that we would just apprehend these things, that you would continue to encourage us and to teach us to walk by faith and to not walk by sight. Lord, help us to learn the lessons of those who were faithful and believing in you and even gleaning from those who were unfaithful and not trusting in you. And as your prophet Habakkuk said, though there be no fruit on the vine, yet I will trust in you, my Lord and my God. Lord, we pray that you would make these passages just come alive in our hearts and that we would apply them into our everyday lives. And whether we believe it or not, whether we want to trust in it or not, we confess, Lord, this morning that you are in control. Help us to rest in that. And we pray these things in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. God bless you guys.